Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we are going through the book of Hebrews on Sunday nights, and uh, I think it's just a, a fantastic book. And just gives us an amazing glimpse into, if, you, if you've been a believer for a while, so I know Focus Church, a lot of the members are, if you've been a believer for a while, then you, it's possible to kind of forget what an amazing thing the gospel really is. And the book of Hebrews really kind of gives us a push forward on that. If you're not a believer, and I know some of the members of Focus Church are not believers, um, then hopefully it gives you a little glimpse of why it's so important to some of us, and maybe why you should think about it. Um, and so we talked last week about just the intro to Hebrews. We talked about who wrote it. The answer is we don't know. We talked about why it was written. Um, and the answer to that is to show that believer, Jewish uh, members of, of the Hebrews, the Jews, who believed in one sense that Jesus was the Messiah, but were really wrestling with how to reconcile the Old Covenant, all the law and the prophets with the Messiah, and, and whether... Because Jesus made some claims which forced them to kind of make a choice. They had to let go of some of the, the old law in order to embrace the gospel. And so were they betraying God in doing that? Were they changing religion? Were they losing their religion, so to speak? And this was the conflict they were wrestling with. And so the author of Hebrews writes them to show them that, in fact, they are reconciled, but not in the way they might be thinking. Um, and in a way that surprises them, in a way that shows that the new is better than the old, without that meaning that the old is somehow flawed or incomplete or weak, or bad. And that's what we get into when we go into Hebrews. And so we're going to jump right in. I, you know, it, didn't, it occurred to me later, I didn't mention when the book of Hebrews last week was written. Uh, and last week I did not mention when the book of Hebrews was written. And um, kind of meant to. So it's probably written early. And I won't go into a great amount of detail except to say that the content of the book of Hebrews pushes for an early time period, but it also pushes for an early time period because nowhere in the book of Hebrews is it mentioned that the temple has been destroyed, which happens in 70 AD. And given the content of the book of Hebrews, that would be something that would have come up. You would have mentioned that the temple has been destroyed, it seems to me. So the fact that the author never mentions that does lead us to believe this was probably written before 70 AD, which matches the style, the content of Hebrews as well. All right, so let's jump in. It's really fascinating. The, the author of Hebrews, in fact, doesn't waste any time himself. We've mentioned it's not a letter, there's no greeting. In some sense, it feels like there's not even an intro. He just jumps right into the meat in a lot of ways. He says, just starts right off with this kind of a, this, this statement. In fact, in the first four or five verses of the book of Hebrews, he unfolds four significant, deep, complex theologies, <laughs> which challenge the Jewish world already. And so he doesn't waste any time getting into it. On the other hand, it really is an intro. It really is an intro, because the fact that in those first four verses, he covers all four of these, kind of is this his way of saying, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what you can expect to see. It's a little bit of an outline of what's to come. And so we're going to spend the bulk of our time today on those first four verses. The rest of it is going to, that we're going to look at is just going to be sort of his proofs, which will just show you why those are proofs. And then in the beginning of the second chapter is sort of the challenge. And so we want to end with that challenge today. Um, if at all possible. Um, now, I, uh, I have a workout that I start on my watch when I teach, 
Uh, you may think that that's cheating, but I do move a bit. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing right now on my watch. I'm not checking the time. I'm just starting that workout because I forgot. All right. So let's jump in to the, to the book of Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews, as I mentioned, in these first four verses, he's going to hit these complex theologies. So we're just going to kind of walk through them and see what they are as we go. So he says, in the past, he starts right off, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So right off the bat we have, I told you that this is a series of better than arguments. And he already right off the bat is talking about the past versus the son. And he's, but it's interesting, he's not dismissing the past. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And so God was speaking, he says, all those things we heard, all the laws, all the prophets, Moses and Abraham and all the things they heard. He's not saying those weren't real. He's saying God did speak in many times and in various ways. And that's important and that's beautiful and that's good. You can't say that that's, that that's bad. If it was truly God speaking, how could you diminish that? And he's not. The author of Hebrews is not diminishing that. But then he says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, it could be that he's just saying that the son speaks with more revelation than the prophets. And there could be truth to that. And even on a practical level, you can sort of see, you know, if, if somebody speaks for somebody and then the son of the person comes along and speaks, we give credit to the son in some ways, credibility, because they know the father more, perhaps. But I actually don't even think that's the point. There's a really interesting difference in the grammar here, which is worth noting. And it's this. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. So he spoke through the prophets. God wanted to say things, and so he did. And the prophets gave all these promises that God had given them, right? The Messiah is coming. This is what's going to happen. And so when God spoke, he would speak through them. They would speak for God. That as they speak, we know that they're speaking words that God wants them to speak. But then it says this, in these last days he has spoken to us, not through his son, but by his son. This is interesting. What it's saying is, is if, it's if the Son is the word that God is speaking, right? That, 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 what he, that what the Son does, what the Son looks like, what the Son exemplifies, everything that the Son is, is God speaking. So in the old days, in the past, says the author of Hebrews, the prophets spoke to us of promises of the Messiah to come. They spoke to us of all these things that were going to happen, including, first and foremost, the Messiah, the Savior, the Hero, the Anointed One, the the special chosen person that was going to come and, and redeem our country and rescue us. So God spoke through them. But now he speaks by his son. It's kind of like I make a lot of promises to you. And so I speak the promises. But then what really speaks is the action. Right? When I follow through with the promises, I speak by following through. And that is more substantive. It's more real. It's more credible. It's more powerful than the words that I've spoken. If I say to you, I'm going to take out the garbage tomorrow morning. <laughs> Why do you care? You know, if I say to my wife, I'm going to take out the garbage tomorrow morning, and I say that all day long, that's great, it's good, she's glad I'm promising it, but when I take the garbage out, when I speak of my love for her by taking the garbage out, that's even more powerful, that's even more incredible, or more credible. And that's what he's saying, is that the prophets spoke of the Messiah to come, but now God has spoken by the Messiah. God has spoken by his Son. It's interesting, even John, in the Gospel of John, refers to Jesus as the Word, the Logos, sort of the, the speech of God, right? The action that demonstrates the fulfillment. And that is what he's saying, is he's setting up in just this one tiny first verse this idea that the Old Testament is good. 
It's valuable. It was God's word. It was God's law. It was God's commands. And none of that's going away. But all of it was promises of something to come. And in the Son, we have the promise fulfilled. So while the Old Testament's good, it's obviously not as good as the fulfillment. No promise is as good as the fulfillment of the promise. No IOU is as good as the actual money in hand, right? But it doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, what makes the promise good is the fulfillment of it. So the Son reinforces the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus himself said of himself, he said, not one dot or tittle, not one little tiny piece of the law will part, will go away, will, will disappear. He says, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He actually reinforces the purpose of the law by being there, because the law is a promise. And that's what this all is. And so that's what he says. The prophets spoke to us, and now it's fulfilling the promise. And this is one of the first things that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand is what he's trying to do through the entire book, is to show us that the Old Testament makes promises, and the New Testament, the New Covenant, fulfills them. The New is the fulfillment of old promises. You don't have to think that you're betraying God by embracing Jesus fully, but instead, you're actually embracing the fulfillment of the promises God made. You're right in line with what God had intended all along. It also shows us that it's not like God changed his mind, or he changed his plan, or he tried the law, and the law didn't work, so now he tried Jesus. No, the point is, it's always been the plan that the Son is the fulfillment of all of the old promises. So this is sort of the answer. This is the reconciliation of what they struggled with. They're not having to change their religion. They've just now reached the fulfillment of their religion. They've reached the, the place, the, the moment where it all comes together. So nothing in this really is, is a challenge to the actual theology of the Jews, but the question is whether that's true or not, right? Whether Jesus is intended to be the fulfillment. And if he is for him to be the fulfillment... There's some thorny things we have to understand, and some other thorny theologies, at least for the Jews they were thorny, some theologies that are complex. So the first statement is that the new is the fulfillment of the old promises. There we go. Well, should be coming up. Don't worry about it if you don't see it. The new is the fulfillment of the old promises. <clears throat> so right off the bat, he's making this point. But he goes on, he says this, to continue. It says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. I'm going to see if I can just get the screen to work here a little bit. There we go. So whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Here's the thing to understand. In the Hebrew world, right, in the Hebrew understanding, uh, the person who created everything is God. <laughs> there aren't multiple gods, there's just one God. And this is really important in the Jewish world. God, in fact, this is the first commandment. The Lord your God is one. He is the only God. You don't worship more than one God. And the Lord God is one is the one who created the entire universe, right? All throughout the Old Testament, whenever they met other nations who claimed they had gods, the, the God of the Hebrews was consistently saying, I am the God who made everything including these people, including every stick and stone and, and clay statue that they worship. Everything that's there, I have made. I created everything. So this idea of who, through whom all things are made, who made the universe, the only answer to that is God. So the author of Hebrews is not shying away from the idea that the Son is God. 
right? So the Son is God, and there's only one God. There's not more than one God. That's something that doesn't change. If you went from there only being one God to there being three gods, or five gods, or nine gods, or whatever, there's no way those reconcile. That can't be a fulfillment if the promise is made. There still is only one God. That's been such a key tenant throughout the Jewish world that that can't have changed. And yet you can see their dilemma is that this Messiah named Jesus is claiming to be God and spoken of here as the Son of God. And he talks about him being through whom God speaks and through whom he appointed heir of all things, so he owns all things. But it says because he created all things. So he didn't really appoint him as heir like that's a new thing. He just found a person and said, you get to be God now for a while. It's not Bruce Almighty happening here. And so in this discussion, he introduces just very, very briefly, and he doesn't get into it in detail here, and neither will we, although we're going to talk a little bit about it, this idea of something that shows up, this concept that shows up several times in the New Testament, of a triune God. You may have heard the term Trinity. The term Trinity doesn't exist in the New Testament, but the concept of a triune God absolutely does. And the point of it is that there's one God. He is still one God, made up of three persons. And we say, well, what does that even mean? What does that look? You know, there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's one God. He is just one God, but he's made up of three persons. And that, that's complicated. And it's complex. And we try to come up with all sorts of analogies for that, right? I've heard all sorts of explanations. So one really common one is like an egg, right? And Trinity is like an egg because you've got the shell and you've got the egg white and you've got the yolk. And they're all an egg. But they're all different parts. Well, that, that's not really it. That's just parts. <laughs> right? The, the problem there is that the yolk isn't, all of, isn't totally the egg. And the egg whites aren't totally the egg. And the shell isn't totally the egg. But the fact is that each part of the Trinity is totally God. <laughs> so somehow you would have to have the... You can't, you can't separate the parts. You can't separate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't separate God into three parts. You can separate an egg into three parts. Sometimes people say it's like water, which is, can be water in its liquid state, or it can be ice in its solid state, or it can be steam in its, in its steam state. But the fact is, in its steam state, gaseous state. But the fact is that, again, that's not one item which is all three at once. That's one thing which is, has sort of three different phases or states that it can be in. And it's not as if God is shifting between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way either. Sometimes I've heard it described as roles, that, that I'm a father, I'm also a son, I'm also a brother, I'm also a pastor, right? I have all these different roles, right? I can be a father, a son, and a brother at the same time, but I'm still just one person. Yeah, I think we can all kind of see how it's, that's not exactly the same. When we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't just mean that sometimes God acts like a father, and sometimes God acts like a son, and sometimes God acts like a Holy Spirit. That isn't what we mean either. See, the problem is we, we wrestle with, and, and I understand it, we try, we need to understand things. And this idea of a three-in-one is very complicated. But here's the bottom line about the trying and understanding. No one understands it. And that's not a cop-out. That's important. Because what it tells us is that the God that we serve is too big for us to comprehend. Look, there's this idea in the Old Testament, which relates very much to this idea. There's this idea in the Old Testament of God being holy. That's in the New Testament too, but we see it all throughout. It's a very important aspect of who God is. And when we think of the term holy, we might think of the term holy meaning very religious, right? Or very pure, somehow, or, or following certain commands really well or something. But none of that is what we mean by God. God is not religious. God is, is uh, you know, I mean, I suppose he's pure, but it depends what you mean by that. And, and God is not um, following commands. <laughs> he's just God. Really, the idea of holiness in the Old Testament is, is talking about God's otherness. 
that he's so much bigger, he's so much different than we are, that there's a degree to which we just, our brains can't even begin to comprehend him. Now this can be attached to other attributes. So we can think of him in his righteousness as being very holy, meaning that his rightness and his righteousness is so vast that it's other than what we can grasp. It's terrifying to us how right he is. We can think of his love as being part of his holiness, right? His love is so other. It's so unconditional. It's so vast. It's so big. It's so uh, magnanimous. It's so, you know, not like the love we show each other. So patient and long-suffering and new every day. Never runs tired. That it, There's an otherness to it. But that's the idea of holiness is this otherness. He's so different. He's so big. He's so much bigger than we are. We try to understand him, but we're always going to come up a little bit short, and, and there's always a degree to which we can never exactly, on our own terms, figure him out enough to relate to him. You know, think about things like time, right? We understand the flow of time, and we understand sort of the passage of time, but God is infinite. How do we even begin to grasp the idea of infinite? We think of a lot of years, but how do we think of infinite years, right? How do we think of a timeless eternity? These are things that are so other than our experience that they're kind of impossible for us to grasp in their totality. And the, the Hebrews understood this about God. They understood that he was not like all the other nations' gods who could be explained and described and, and you could see exactly what their character was and their thinking was. And In fact, they thought just like the people who created them. But the God of the Hebrews was constantly saying things like, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My holiness is beyond you. And so when we come to the idea of a triune God, I get it, I'm not saying it's wrong, but that we try to come up with analogies to explain this idea of a three in one, the problem is that the idea of the triune God is partly that it's like nothing we've ever seen in the universe. There is no other being, there is no other creature, there is no other thing in the universe that we can relate to that is three in one, that is three persons in one. Definitely one God, definitely three persons. <laughs> That's just impossible. For us to see, we have nothing to compare it to. He is unique. He is alone. He is the only. He is the other. And this aspect of the idea of the Trinity is something that is not at all incompatible with Hebrew theology. He's still one God, but he's this God which is something that we can only describe. I think even our description of it is probably not quite accurate. But he's something that we can only describe as being sort of three and one, with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the other thing to understand, is that when you think about those terms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're kind of described in their interaction with us, with each other to some degree, but more with us. But that's also characteristic of God, that in his otherness, he wants to make himself relatable to us in some way. So he reveals himself to us in ways we understand. So here he uses terms like Father and Son and Holy Spirit in order that we can have some concept of what those mean. But those are just attempts to describe the otherness of God. And there is something about this relational aspect of God, of a God who is love, we're told in First John, who is so loving that for all of eternity, he's had a relationship in his own being in which this love flowed. So is it any wonder that he wants us to be people of relationship as well? And if you find the idea of the triune God a little troubling, a little concerned, a little bit complicated, a little hard to understand, if you wish it was just something you could nail down, welcome to the otherness of God. <laughs> welcome to the otherness of God. And so we have this concept, this idea of the son who does fulfill a certain role. He's not defined by that role, but he fulfills a certain role as part of the Trinity when it relates to the gospel. A role that relates to us, something that we can understand. The son is more than that. The son has been around for all of eternity, but in our understanding, he's part of this plan of the gospel.
So he introduces that when he talks about the Son being the one who created all things. He's saying the Son is a, a personhood that seems sort of, he's using differently than the Father and the Holy Spirit. But it is the Son who created the universe. He is God. There are not three gods, there's one God. So, a God this big and this uncomprehensible, but also this relational, is exactly the kind of God the Jews understood, that the Hebrews had been told about, the revelation they'd been given all this time. And so the author of Hebrews wants to say, this is not so radically different. It doesn't get into a great, great deal of that right here. We'll see some of that come up, but it's, it's understanding you understand that's some of the underpinning in the background that the early church would have understood. But then he goes on to describe the sun, and he says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So again, in case you're still not sure, this sentence is intended to do two things. One of them to assure us that the Son is God. To say the exact representation doesn't just mean a really good facsimile, it means exact. And to be exact, he's a representation because he is. But he goes on to make that more clear. He says, sustaining all things. Not only does God create the universe, but he's the sustainer of all things. The Jews understood that too. So Jesus is the creator. He's the sustainer. His powerful word sustains all things. He's God, period. But we also have this idea of representation, right? If he is just God, what does it mean that he's the representation of his being? How does Jesus represent his being? He represents it by being in a, in a tangible, physical form that people could see. And that is this third great theology that the author of Hebrews introduces way at the beginning of this book. And that's what we call the Incarnation. It says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What that means is that this, this is an amazing, amazing, again, complex theology, which, like the Trinity, you may have heard and just sort of moved on. But this is so... This is incredible. For me personally, I can't think of a better demonstration of God's power than this. Perhaps creating everything out of nothing is, is, is the pinnacle, perhaps. But this is really, really close, if not even stronger. Because what happens is this. We have a God who's other. We just discussed that. And part of that otherness is that he's transcendent. That means he is outside of time. He's outside of space. He's, he's created all those things He's not limited to those things. Those things are, are part of his creation. It's like, it's like a, you know, if it's a nesting doll, he's the outer doll and these other things are inside. And somehow this transcendent God, this incredibly infinite God, managed to squeeze himself down into the smallest nesting doll. But it's, it's obviously not just a matter of space, it's a matter of time, it's a matter of power, it's a matter of all sorts of things that are really hard to comprehend. When you start to think of the idea of, as a, of God of the universe becoming a baby in a manger, it introduces all sorts of crazy questions. Like, did Jesus have all the knowledge of the universe when he was a baby? And, and you know, as he's growing up, what is that experience like if he's God? And, and if God is all inside this little baby, then what's happening in the rest of the universe? I mean, it just, it's just incomprehensible for us. And, and the power that would be required for a God who is transcendent to somehow write himself into his story. It would be like if you were an author, if you were writing books, and you wrote yourself into your story, but you didn't just write about yourself, you didn't just have words on paper, but somehow you were actually able to put yourself in that two-dimensional paper, in that story that you were writing. I mean, you literally began to live in that story. You'd have to have a lot of power. It's a lot of power to create the story, but can you imagine having the power to actually put yourself inside it, where you actually experienced it and lived it? 
And what would that mean, and how would you do that? That's what happened. The transcendent God placed himself into the story of the universe that he was writing. And that's an incredibly audacious thing. And it's not something that I think it even occurred to the Hebrews. And so this is one of the difficulties, right? How can you describe this boy, this, this Jesus, who, who his family saw him as a baby, saw him grow up, saw him grow, old, grow older, saw him die, saw him maybe get sick? How can that be God? And yet this is what the author says, that he was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, but he spent these years, immersed his time in life. Now here again, this isn't completely foreign to the Hebrews. I mean, not the concept of the incarnation is in many ways, but the idea of God visiting people in a form that they could see, in a human form, it shows up through the Old Testament over and over. God speaks to Abraham. Well, to speak to Abraham, there's some sort of form of physical well-being. God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Well, there's some sort of representation of his physical being there. John and the other apostles are very clear. God is spirit. But he chose at times in the Old Testament to appear in a form that people could interact with in order to relate with us, to, 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 to be with us. So in periods of time, he had already done this. He had already sort of revealed himself in ways that we could see. The astonishment at this point is the immersion of it for 33 years in the life of Jesus, while at the same time continuing to be the Father reigning over the entire universe. And there is where we get the triune God and the incarnation coming together to show us the incredible complexity and amazing power of our God. And so here, that's sort of the third thing that he introduces here. So we've talked about the triune nature of God and then the incarnation. And then he goes on and he says this. So where we were, he says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And this is the final piece. This is the purification of sins. That what the Messiah came to do wasn't what the Hebrews had thought, simply to resurrect the nation of Israel. It wasn't to usher in a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, that would then bring Israel back to its glory, where it no longer was under oppression or exile or all the, the historical troubles and trials that it experienced. But that somehow this Messiah, this anointed one, this hero, that when he came, his job, his mission, was the purification of sins. Now, here again, the idea of the purification of sins was probably less foreign to the Hebrews than it is to many of us. This, uh, this idea of atonement, this idea of somehow being able to cleanse somebody of their sins, that's hard for us in our modern-day, postmodern culture, because sometimes we don't know if we believe or accept the idea of personal sin, personal responsibility, um, and then the idea of redemption comes hard, and then the idea of someone else being able to cleanse us of our sins, all of that runs against the grain of so many things that we believe in. For the Hebrews, this would have been very familiar to them, but the idea of a, a person being able to do this in any sort of permanent sense would have been hard for them. But the Hebrews did believe so much of the promises of the Old Testament came not just through the prophets, but also through the priests. And the priest's job was to, was to provide atonement for the Israelite nation and for Israelites over and over and over. There were a lot of sacrifices. There were a lot of offerings that were made to God. There was a lot of ceremonies and a lot of festivals, and they were all very complicated and very time-consuming. And if you really read through them, it appears that a, a, a priest's entire day was based on purification and atonement. I had very little time to do anything else um, throughout the year. And, and in fact, so much so that it was up to other Levites to take care of the temple, to cleanse the temple, to do all these other things. 
And, but this was what was mattered. There's so much. There's Yom Kippur, which is a day of atonement that the Hebrews celebrate. There's Passover. There's, there's all these days where purification and sacrifice are built in and woven into the fabric of their culture. That to say to somebody, the Messiah came for purification of sins, might be a startling thought, but not a completely implausible one. They must have thought of that and thought, well, we kind of thought he would do that on one level. But what exactly do you mean? And that is what the author of Hebrews is doing with this intro. He's providing these four big theologies, right? So the, the new is the fulfillment of the old. The new is going to fulfill all the promises that were made in the old. The promise of this God who is other, this relational God. We now get this greater revelation of him as a triune God. The idea of the incarnation, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, that God spoke by his son, not just through his son. And then the purification of sins, that all that that yearly, year after year after year after year atonement for sins, that Jesus somehow is the fulfillment of doing that on a larger scale. And the rest of the book of Hebrews, the author's going to explain how all this can be. He's going to give proofs for all this. He's going to show how the Old Testament promises pointed to these things, pointed to Jesus being this person. It's as if he's saying to the Hebrews, this is it. This is the advanced class, right? This is the pinnacle. This is the fulfillment. This is the... This is the, the nirvana, this is the mountaintop, this is the, 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 the self-realization. Whatever sort of the pinnacle of your philosophy or religion is, he's saying to the Jews, this is it. This is indeed what we've been waiting for. This is the fulfillment. This is the answer. And then it goes on and it says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven because his mission is complete. The mission is purification of sin, so he sits down. Now, at the right hand also indicates a place of honor. So he literally sat down at the right hand? No, again, I think there's a lot of... God is spirit, right? So I don't know that, there's, that God sits at a big table necessarily. But there is this idea, this concept of honor, that, that Jesus, even though he is God, he is dirt, worthy of honor because of what he did for us. God glorifies himself by showing himself to be the kind of God who loves us so much that he would give up himself for the purification of our sins. And so that, that's what that talks about. So this is what we've seen in just these few short verses. It's really just the first four, but it is such an introduction. Now for them, they wouldn't have understood everything I just said, of course, as they read this, but they would have seen that he's making some startling statements. You know, they would start to ask questions. What does it mean that the Son is the exact representation? What is he saying that the Son is the one who created everything, but there's also this God, the Father? What, how does that work? What does he mean, purification of sins? What does he mean that he spoke by his Son, and when in the past he only spoke through the prophets? It would have led to all the questions which the author of Hebrews is now answering. I just gave you the more fuller picture so you'd understand as we go through what we're looking at in each of these cases. He goes on, he said, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. So again, this idea of him becoming superior to the angels, he's actually going to explain this. It does not mean that Jesus was not superior, was not perfect, was not divine, was not God. As we go forward, he's going to explain what he means by this. But it has to do with the idea that there's, there's something about our salvation that required the incarnation. We may ask why, that's never answered in scripture. <laughs> But there's something about it in which Jesus was made more perfect for our salvation by being human. We'll actually see that in chapter 2 next week when we get there. So we'll talk about that. But I think that's what he's referring to here. That in that way he became superior to the angels because the angels have never been human. But the name he has is already superior, right? He is God. So this is the point. 
And then, for the rest of the scripture, for the rest of chapter 1, the author of Hebrews is simply giving proofs from the Old Testament to help the Hebrews understand that it's always been this way. So he goes back and shows them this relationship between the Son and the Father, meaning this triune God. He goes back to show them that the Son has always been superior to the angels, therefore God, right? Not just human. He goes back and shows them all these things. And so we'll read the rest of chapter 1, but I'm not going to break it down. But if you want to go through, I'm sure that if you, find, if you have a Bible or find one or go online, you can find the references for each of these in the Old Testament where he's, he's showing them, here's a verse in the Old Testament, here's how it's fulfilled here. Going back to this idea that the new is the fulfillment of old promises. And this is what he says. And again, the point being here that Jesus is superior to the angels, to the messengers of God, meaning the angels, also meaning the prophets and Moses and Abraham. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Interesting passage. Your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, but then says, God, your God, has set you above. Again, this triune nature. God is doing this for himself with himself. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are like the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits to serve those who inherit salvation? The angels serve us. The angels serve humans who have inherited salvation. I don't know exactly what that means. He doesn't explain it. But his point is, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is God. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our adoration. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, after dropping these kind of bombs a little bit, kind of saying, here's how amazing, how big, how powerful, how incredible the gospel is. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says this. He's trying to communicate to them, listen guys, this is not some little offshoot. This is not some little weird cult or heresy or sect that Jesus started. This is not something you just dismiss with a wave of your hands. This is not something even at odds with our Hebrew religion. This is the culmination of it. This is big. This is huge. This is powerful. This is everything you've been waiting for. And he says this, We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So here's his point. You want to cling to the angels, the messengers of the Old Testament, the prophets, the angels, the, 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 the priests, the promises, all of those pictures of the Old Testament, all that foreshadowing. You want to cling to that. But if you think that was so big, if you think that was so important, how much more should you be responsive when the fulfillment of all those promises comes to pass? Right? We talked last week about the difference between the map and the destination. If you love the map of Santa Fe because it gets you to Santa Fe, if you love the map that gets you to Santa Fe so much, how much more should you love Santa Fe? <laughs> right? And that's kind of his point. Don't cling to it. If you think the angels are bringing you hope and they're just promising of a bigger hope, then what do you lose? What are you losing if you don't pay attention to the bigger hope, to the salvation that's actually there? 
The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed by those by, to us by those who heard him. Now the Hebrew's getting a little personal. The, the author of Hebrews is getting a little personal here. I've heard from eyewitnesses of what Jesus did and who he was. And then he says, And God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's saying, look, don't, don't ignore it. Jesus has done amazing things. God has done amazing things. The church has done amazing things. There's so many evidences around you, so many, so many, in, so many examples and pictures that this is what God is doing at this time. And so we have the same things in front of us. I think that we live at a time when we forget that we're still in the middle of what are called the last days. The last days are everything from the Messiah forward, right? We're in the last chapter. We don't know how long the last chapter will be. The first several chapters were thousands of years. <laughs> I don't know how long the last chapter will be. We're up to 2,000 years now. But it is the last chapter. The most important fulfillment has happened. We live as Christians not at a time when we need to be seeking Christianity 102 or something more advanced. We need to not be looking for some more, more powerful spiritual answer. We, unlike the Hebrews before Jesus, we aren't waiting for the fulfillment of the gospel of everything the Old Covenant tells us. All those promises have been met. The only promise we're still waiting on is for the Lord to come back. But that's just to tidy up. That's just to kind of declare it's all done. But right now, we live in the end times. We live at the moment when we have Christianity. And yet, and yet, we've been at this for a while. And I think we forget how impressive the gospel is. And so often we look for something more. We think the gospel can't be all there is. Jesus can't truly be enough. And the author of Hebrews would remind us who Jesus is. He is the God who created the universe. He is the second member of the triune God that we serve. He is superior to the angels. He is the purification of our sins. What on earth are you trying to add to what he can do? What are you trying to add to what he's done? So if you're an unbeliever, I want to, I want to challenge you. that you can't, you can't neglect what you've heard, right? You can't simply say, eh, interesting story. Yeah, it's an interesting story, but it's either true or it's not. And if it's true, it should change your whole life. And if it's not, well, then yeah, you can just walk away. But if it's true, what a great salvation you're missing out on. Right? Everything you've been looking for, all the self-actualization and realization and wisdom and understanding and, and, and redemption that you are so desirous of in your life, justice that you are so wanting, it's all offered in the gospel. The God of the universe is bringing it to you, and he's testified to it. I'm sure he has in your life, and he's testifying to it all the time. Let's not just lay it aside. And if you are a believer, I'd say the same thing. If you're a believer, and this is true, and you've accepted that it's true, well, then it should change your whole life, shouldn't it? If this is actually true, then all of our energy should be in the devotion and embracing of who Jesus is. Our eyes, as the author of Hebrews says later, should be fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, not upon all the things which distract us. We become so easily distracted. And yet the author of Hebrews wants to remind us what amazing thing it is that we live in the time when the promises have been fulfilled. What are you holding out for? What are you waiting for? This is what the author says to the, the Hebrews. What are you waiting for? The map has brought you to Santa Fe, right? What, what are you waiting for? Believer, unbeliever, somewhere on the fence. What are you waiting for? You're hearing me now. The map has brought you to Santa Fe. Enjoy Santa Fe. Map has brought you to LA, wherever it is, pick your place. The map has brought you to the gospel, to the Lord Jesus, to the, to the God of the universe who created all things, by his word sustains all things, and who is responsible for the purification of your sins.
There's nothing left to wait for. There's nothing left to hold out for. This is it. This is the moment. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And that's where he comes in these first couple chapters. So as we go through the rest of Hebrews, we'll definitely see he's going to piece together more of this. Now, a lot of his proofs won't necessarily be convincing to you because he's not writing them specifically for you. He's writing them to Hebrews. People who already believe in God, already believe in the Old Testament, and really already believe in the Messiah. They just don't necessarily know if Jesus is it or not, or they don't understand what that means. So it's not necessarily a book written to, to, to prove anything to you, but it is a book written that can communicate to you the weight and the substance and the amazing claims of Jesus, whether you choose to believe them or not. And that's what we'll see as we go through Hebrews, is the proofs that he gives from the Old Testament, and then what that means. What does it actually mean that he came for the purification of our sins? How does that work? What does that look like? And how do we embrace that? So that's what we'll see as we go through the rest of Hebrews. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.